This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Wanted to get to something that I, I, frankly, I found this hysterical. I found this so funny when I first heard this. I couldn't actually believe that this was actually a thing. I had to go and find the audio to prove that this was really a thing. This was in the House of Commons earlier this week. It is an MP from Calgary Nose Hill. Now, we all know that Calgary, that all of Alberta has been suffering lately. The oil prices have dropped and the economy is suffering. And so she stands up in the House of Commons and very passionately begins making the case that this is a problem. This is something that needs to be resolved. We have to find, the government has to find ways to aid the people of Alberta. So I'm going to play you the entirety of the clip. It lasts for about a minute. This is the exchange. Now, the first person you're going to hear is Michelle Rempel. You may have heard this story, but the first person you're going to hear is Michelle Rempel. The second person, the second female voice you will hear, because I believe the Speaker of the House interjects momentarily, the second voice you're going to hear is Elizabeth May, the leader of the Green Party. Luke, let's play this clip right now. This is from a couple days ago in the House of Commons. Why isn't the government talking about how to retain skilled labor? Why isn't the infrastructure minister talking about how to implement infrastructure funds and get construction workers back to work in Alberta? Why does this government treat Alberta like a fart in the room? that nobody wants to talk about or acknowledge. That is where my constituents have been at with this government for over a year. And you know what? We're tired of it. We watched what happened. I watched what happened in Brexit. Oh, and by the way, constituents, as I'm giving this speech, there's Liberal members across the aisle that are laughing at me. And they're laughing at you. I watched what happened in Brexit. And I... Point of order. The Honourable Member for uh, Saanich uh, Gulf Islands. Interrupt my friend in her speech, but I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary, and I think she may want to withdraw it. The word was F-A-R-T. The Honourable uh, men, uh, Member for Calgary Signal Hill. Are, we se- are you serious, Mr. Speaker? Like, is my colleague actually serious? I just gave an impassioned speech that's about supporting thing. Alberta jobs, and that's what the leader of a political party stands up and has to say. No, I don't withdraw it. The Honourable Member for. I just I I heard this, and I got to be honest with you. My first reaction was to laugh because I just thought it was a hysterical exchange for the very reasons that Michelle Rempel says. She's up there arguing like crazy. She's trying to make her point to better the lot of her constituents and the one thing that stands out in her speech is that she used the word fart now frankly i thought it was kind of a funny usage that the people of her riding are like a fart in a room nobody wants to talk about it was the line you say funny i say apt what like think think about the how she used that uh, i thought it was fine that terminology and and try to substitute it for something else i think that was actually probably one of the best analogies she could have made to get her point across and the funny part to me is then again elizabeth may jumps up and elizabeth may won't even say the word she has to spell it like she is a parent talking to another parent in the room hey we're going to uh, take the kids for i c e c r e a m I mean, it's, this is what we did when we were parents of young kids and she's spelling out the word to the house of commons. So here, I'm going to throw it open to you because we have a few minutes here. I didn't have any problem whatsoever with this comment from this MP, from this MP. I did not, you know, it, she didn't 
drop an F-bomb. She didn't say something else that was really outrageously, I thought, dirty. My question is, is the word fart a dirty word now? That's what I don't understand. And listen, you're talking to someone, you're listening to someone who, as a rule, doesn't, tries not to swear, doesn't swear. I don't, I like to think that there are other ways that you can get your point across without that. I'm not judging you. If you do, that's fine. That's not me. That, that, the last time, I'll be honest with you, the last time I dropped an F-bomb was accidentally, and it was on this station. It was on the air a little over a year ago. We were doing the Novemberger hamburger eating and, um, the pheasant plucker had brought in a burger and I had a mouthful of hamburger and tried to pronounce the name of that restaurant and it came out horribly wrong. (laughs) Uh, It's a place that I, you know, great restaurant intentionally, I believe designed to make you say the wrong thing, but you didn't. I I, like every time you bring this up, I want to point out you did not, it got most of the way out before I cut it off. No, um, you didn't get nearly as close as you think you did. Cause trust me, I had to go back because if you had said something that would have been bad for both of us, but no, you were, you were fine. The point is, I am not someone, so I'm, I'm coming from a position where I generally don't use that language personally, and even I don't think there's anything wrong with calling, with using the word fart in, within certain contexts, and this was one of the contexts that she was using, but what do you think? 905-645-3221, star 9900. In the, in the modern age, when we are hearing day after day that more and more people are using what would be described as obscenities in their everyday life. Do we really, do we really have a problem with someone in the house of commons saying fart or for the more delicate listeners, F A R T just so Elizabeth may remains happy with me. I wouldn't want her to be offended by how I describe her interaction here. Is this a bad word? Now I understand what it means. I know what the word means. I know it's not pleasant. I know that having someone do that to you or in your presence is not pleasant. That's not the point here. She was making, she was making a point. She was making a, a, a point about her constituents and about her situation. And you know what? Sometimes in my mind, sometimes you actually draw attention and you do a better job of getting attention. If you can come up with something that is going to reverberate with people, it's going to stick with them. When I'm writing, you're trying to find ways to express something sometimes that is going to make it stand out from the rest of the din and the rest of the noise. And I heard this and I got to be honest with you. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was a, a really kind of a funny way to make the point while she was doing something very meaningful. And I'm, I'm very surprised to be honest with you. I'm very surprised that anybody took issue with it, took issue with it. I I mean, it makes me believe quite frankly that the, that Elizabeth may or whoever else was upset with it was only trying to score cheap political points by making it sound like, you know, the tisk tisk thing that the teacher would have that you had come up with a bad word. Cause do you really think, I mean, if you were to say in, in, in polite company, and I don't even know today where it would be that you would, would you would be on your best behavior with your best use of the queen's English. And I grant you, perhaps if you were in having an audience with Queen Elizabeth, perhaps you wouldn't talk about fart. <laughs> I mean, that, but at the same time, I mean, who knows what the Queen's sense of humor is all about? I've never met her. 
But I just look at this and I go, I, I don't know. Are we really going to be bent out of shape in this country about this word now? Frank joins me. Frank, how are you tonight? I'm great, thanks. Uh, I was just talking to your screener, and I was telling him that, you know, immediately when you said that, flatulence comes to a more gentlemanly-like uh, word, but then again, too, the context to which you were using in that somebody was a, a little bit in a, in a frustrated mo- uh, mode there that they used the word uh, fart. Well, okay. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, you, you know I, I tie in with you there, um, uh, Scott. You said you never use uh, inappropriate language, Okay. I have, in all my years, when I got into a moment of frustration and anger, I would never use a vulgar word because I feel it's a substitute for proper vocabulary. And I think if you're angry and you want to raise a point, you don't have to show you're angry by either making an accusation at somebody with a very crude uh, word, a swear word, or even expressing your anger by swearing. Because, you know, what does it do? It, it, just, it, it actually... They mean your character. But what do you think about this word? Is this word a swear word? Is this a dirty word? Well, can you, you remember when Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, was it Fuddle Duddle? Fuddle Duddle, yep. Yeah, you remember that one, right? I do, yep. Now, that, we could even go back to starting there. But that's not the same thing. I'm sorry. You're right. It, 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 this one here. Okay, if it's not a swear word, but would you use that word if you were out with a bunch of, uh, let's say, business people on, in your profession, or let's say you were, oh, I'll, I'll put it this way, in, in the company of both sexes, and somebody gave gas uh, walking down the hall, would you say who farted, or would you just not say anything? Uh, you know what? It would be it would be one of those situations that it would probably depend on the circumstance. If it was something very very obvious that everybody had made a face and recognized, oh, I, let me it's probably that, then. It, then then it's probably a funny joke. Everyone okay, can be all a, right. All right, you're at the football game. You're all sitting, definitely you're sitting yes, there. definitely okay. yes. Yeah, you're going to say something <laughs> because you're all in that kind of mentality and of fun, and it's not going to be something that is well in that particular instance so inappropriate as it is in in a. Uh, a House of Commons, which is, I just said to Luke, is being, is being uh, uh, shown across the country in papers. And I, I'm, I'm just going on to this time when we are using these people as role models. And I can go on with this on the Trump thing. We're not even going, going to go there. But I feel that these people that are our leaders nationally, politicians that we have upheld enough to vote them in, should not be using that kind of language because it's, it's, you know, they actually could set a trend. It's it's uh, contagious, if you will, if it goes on and on and on. And I don't like people having to lose their temper and start to demean people by saying things like that. Now, I'm stretching it here, mind you. But, no, in answer to your question, I don't think I would like to hear that word said in comments. End Thank, of story. Frank, thanks for the call. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, what do you think? You, you agree with Frank? See, I, again, I don't have a problem with this one. There's a lot of words that I would not want to hear in the House of Commons. I just don't, in this context, the way she said this, I don't have a problem with this at all. At all. I don't have a problem with this one. I, I'm with you. There's a lot of words that I don't believe belong in the House of Commons. Uh, and to an extent, I see what Frank is saying about them being role models. However, uh, not that I think a five-year-old is going to be watching our whatever our version of C-SPAN is, but C-PAC. Uh, I CPAC, thank you. I am perfectly okay with that five-year-old hearing the word fart. And in fact, they will probably find it a lot funnier than even we did. And uh, it is not it is not a bad word. It is not a bad word in any context. In in my opinion, there, yes. 
flatulence is more of a gentlemanly term, I guess. But I would mean, it have made, would she have made even the remotest of impact on the House of Commons with her point if she had said, "We are being treated like flatulence"? No, people would have laughed at her for that. Th- th- then it sounds like then yeah, then you sound like you're actually trying to. I think be a little too uptight. I think she made a point. I think she was trying to make a point. I don't know if she was trying to get discussed on talk radio and on TV and everywhere else and in the papers. I don't know if that was what she was trying to do, maybe. But I think she was trying to make a point and she made it very bluntly. And I think she probably got a lot of applause back home from her constituents. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe, this, is, maybe this is too harsh a word. Maybe this is too harsh a word for us to hear in our House of Commons. Amanda joins me. Amanda, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. What do you think? Are you okay with a M- an MP using the word fart in the House of Commons or no? Um, I think it's perfectly fine, but I, there's one thing that I really wanted to comment on. And, uh, the first caller that called in, he said uh, an example of if you were in a business meeting and uh, somebody farted in the hallway, you couldn't say who farted. You would just kind of leave it. Um, and I think that that's the reason or that has something to do with why she would say it in that sense is that everyone is essentially just ignoring it. So I think that's kind of why she did it. So that, that you're saying that's exactly was her point, that nobody wants to talk about it, and so exactly. let's bring it up. It's a great point. No, and Amanda, you know what? That's exactly what she said, and it's a great point. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, Amanda is absolutely right that the whole point of what she was saying was this is one of those things that nobody ever talks about. This is one of those things that you're not going to address if you were, if you're in an elevator, not to get too, but the most confined space possible and suddenly, you know, you hear something, nobody is going to say a word because it's just what you don't do. But that's exactly the point of what she's saying about their economy. No one's saying a word about this economy. And I think that's, that's the point that was, that was lost by our first caller there is it's not the, the word is not why people don't say it. It's more of a common courtesy why people don't say it. So we're just going to be polite and sit back and take it. Exactly. And, and that is, as this, this caller here pointed out, Amanda, that is the point. That is the point that the MP was trying to make, is that in society, you don't point it out when it happens in an elevator, in a hallway, wherever. Okay, let me just interrupt because we only got a second here. You're not, I'm not going to ask you to say the words because heaven knows we, we both want to yeah, we both <laughs> stay on the radio. But how far past this would be okay in the house gone? Is this the furthest end of questionable maybe or not quite the queen's english use of language what would what would happen if it had been something you know if she had used a slang term for a body part for example i mean sometimes people use those words as an insult to something else or that's, like where's the that's where's too the far. limit where's the limit um i don't know i I feel like probably it's been used, but uh, I, I would feel like the upper limit is probably crap, that that's the most that uh, I would be comfortable with, with MP saying. And I would genuinely be surprised if if it isn't something that's used as a as an emphasizer. Because what, what Frank was, was talking about, about how it, it demeans you when you use profanity, I, I think that... Uh, to an extent, he's right, but it is. It can also be used as an as just 
hammering the point home as an mm-hmm. exclamation point. Sure. And and since MPs obviously have to tone it down, I, I would feel like they would use the word crap as as the placeholder for that, that you have to, when you really have to hammer something home, that's what you go with. And and I don't, and I'm sure they would use other words if they were allowed to, but I, I don't think that demeans them if they use that. However, that's as high as I think they would it they would be, go. It would be interesting if in the House of Commons there was like one day a year free that you could say whatever you wanted and there was going to be no recourse and no penalty. I, 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 I don't know that we would be hearing only the Queen's English. And I think that probably using the word fart would probably be about the least offensive thing we might hear during that debate. However, send me an email, radley at 900chml.com. Am I, am I taking this too simply? Am I overlooking the fact that the House of Commons should be a place of decorum? I mean, theoretically, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place of great decorum. And again, I would not want to see someone pick up their glass off their table and whip it across the aisle at someone else. I wouldn't want to see someone start giving someone else the finger. I wouldn't want to see a bunch of obscenities. I guess my question is... In our modern culture, is that a is that considered a bad word? Elizabeth May clearly did. She thought it was such a bad word that she couldn't even say it out loud. She had to spell it. Phil writes in, since many MPs act like children, the word fart would be appropriate in the House of Commons. And he signs off as flatulating in the hammer. Well, I, I don't want to know about Phil if that's... <laughs> Thanks for that, Phil. Uh, Quick break here on the Scott Radley Show. Uh, Again, Radley at 900CHML.com if you want to add to this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900CHML. The Participation Report Card on Physical Activity for Children and Youth is what it's called. It's a long name. And it was led by the Healthy Active Living and Obesity Research Group at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute. Again, lots of words, but... We want to talk about this because what we found or what has been found in this study essentially is I think what a lot of people probably might have guessed about us in Canada now. And I say us, parents, kids, we don't tend to be all that fit. At least it doesn't appear that way. In fact, when you start comparing Canadian kids to kids around the rest of the world, yeah. Not so good. Not even remotely good. Dr. Alana LeBlanc is an exercise physiologist with participation. She joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, let's, um, let's be very blunt right off the top. Our kids are out of shape and uh, kind of getting fat and not being very active, and it's kind of getting worse. Am I close to being fair there? I, I think you're being reasonably fair. Um, we are doing some good things as well, and we can get into those in a minute. But but in general, our physical activity levels are pretty low. Our sedentary behavior levels are even worse, unfortunately, and our, our amount of kids that, that commute actively is, is pretty bad as well. Well, okay, I, I looked at this report card, and people can go online, and I'll try and post it to my Facebook page when we're done here so people could go on and take a look at the whole thing. We got, as Canadians, we got a D minus overall in the worldwide report card of activity, which is worse than the grades I got in high school, which says just how bad this really must be that we are doing so poorly in overall fitness with our kids. 
Yeah, so this report, it looks at the Canadian grades. So participation puts out a report card every year that looks at physical activity and then many other indicators that influence physical activity. And it looked at these same indicators in 37 other different countries. So that comprised about 60% of the world's population. So a really good indication of the state of physical activity in the world in kids. And yeah, Canadian kids got a D minus. So that represents about 9% of Canadian kids who are meeting Canadian physical activity guidelines. So wow. 60 minutes per day of heart pumping activity. So 9% very low. Well, and you mentioned sedentary activities. The D minus was actually a glorious grade compared to our sedentary activities because that's an F. We got a flat out F, which suggests to me again, not to be overly pessimistic, but that image, that stereotypical image of the kids sitting on the sofa, watching TV or playing video games, eating Cheetos is not all that far off. Yeah, unfortunately, most children, so by and large, the biggest proportion of children are exceeding current screen time guidelines. So they're getting more than two hours per day of recreational screen time. So that's not including screen time that they may have at school or for homework. But in their free time, they're, by and large, playing on computers, watching TV, using tablets, using smartphones, all of this kind of stuff. And they're sitting indoors, like you say, on the couch, and sometimes doing all of those behaviors at the same time. So we are really at the back of the pack with an F, with a failing grade in that. We're we're at the bottom of the barrel. What is shocking about this to me, and I know you're going to get into this, but what's really shocking about this is we are, when you look at, now again, not every country in the world was tested, but many of them were. And when you look at many of the other countries that are tested in this and that we're comparing ourselves against, we are vastly ahead economically. So we have loads of infrastructure in this country for physical activity, for things, places where you can be active. We have tons of organization and opportunity for kids to play sports compared to other places. And yet we are still not. So why are we not? Because every option, every opportunity is there for us to do this. And this has been a positive thing that's happened over the past few years. So over the past few years, we've actually improved grades in things like community environment, school, organized sports. So we're doing better in those grades, which is a really, really positive sign. Unfortunately, it just hasn't translated to the behavior. So we haven't actually moved the needle on the overall physical activity or sedentary behavior. But And we are in a developed country, and we're in good good company for these low grades for physical activity. That being said, there are a few developed, higher-income countries that buck the trend that are able to get their kids active and get them moving off the couch and away from the screen. So it, the, the point is not that we can't do it. It's that we're choosing not to do it. Exactly, and that's what we're really noticing um, in this report and this comparison across so many countries is that those countries that are able to succeed, that have higher levels of physical activity, active transportation, um, this kind of stuff, they it's a way of life. So their normal is to be active. Mm. In Canada, we notice that our normal is more around the screen-based behaviors, driving your kids to school, watching TV at night. That's kind of our normalized social norm. Other countries... They bike everywhere. Netherlands, you see they got top grades for active transportation. And it's because, really, they plow their bike paths before. They're a colder country, but they still manage to do it all year round. What I find so unique and so, I won't say funny, it's more ironic about this than anything, is 
among the things, so we're sitting there watching our tablets and watching our TV and watching our smartphones and spending way too much time doing that. And yet, what is it that we're actually watching? Well, we're watching a ton of sports, which is active. So we're watching people do it. We're watching one of the biggest things that I heard people talking about last summer on TV that everybody was watching was the um, uh, American Ninja Warrior which is like the fittest people on the planet doing things like an obstacle course that we all wish we could do or or the CrossFit games that we only could dream of being able to do and yet we don't want to do the activity. We want to watch other people do the activity. And sometimes it's because those aren't necessarily standards that we can all aspire to. Of Not everyone no, is an American Ninja Warrior. So the thing is, is that sometimes we think of this all or nothing. Well, we're huh. not going to be the CrossFit American Ninja Warrior or anything. So you know what? I'm just going to sit on the couch and watch them. But the thing is, is that we have to also think that those daily activities or those integrated activities throughout the day, so small bursts of activity or biking to work or all those things, they contribute a lot to our overall health and well-being. That's a, you know what? That's a really interesting point you just made, that we watch these kind of shows and come to the conclusion that there's never a chance that I'm ever going to get there, so why start? Exactly. That's and interesting. That, that's, that's, a, that's a very depressing, pessimistic view, but I bet you're right. But it's hard when you're talking about children as well, because what happens is that they gain physical literacy, and adults do as well, but especially in those formative years, they gain physical literacy. They make kids know what they're good at and what they're not good at. And if they kind of self-label themselves as not good at physical activity or not good at sports, then they're going to have low self-efficacy. And we know that one of the best predictors of you doing something is if you think you're good at it, if you think that you can you can run, if you think that you can play, if you think you can catch or any of those kind of things. So if we help build children's self-efficacy when they're younger, they're going to continue on that active route, even if they aren't going to become American Ninja Warrior champion. <laughs> Well, but you know, it's what what you say there though is 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 confusing in a sense, and it's not you that's making it confusing. It's it's society that's a little confusing about this because I just you've probably seen it on Facebook. Um, there is a video that's going around that shows like a 1960s era American gym class, a bunch of boys, and they're doing like push ups and chin ups, and and it's the whole class. And once upon a time, a rigid, rigorous fitness was part of your school. And now we say, well, what you just said, if you're not good at it, you don't want to do it. So we say, well, their self-esteem won't be, so don't worry about phys ed. We're not going to make you try too hard because you may not be good at it. We seem to say rather than let's try and solve the problem, it's, well, let's just eliminate the problem. And so Slovenia, who got the top grade in overall physical activity, so they got an A minus, which is far ahead of any other Which, sorry, which country is that? Slovenia. Slovenia, okay. Slovenia developed country, but you wouldn't think much of them, but they are rocking it. They are killing all of the grades in this. And A minus, far ahead, the next closest grade is a B minus, and it's New Zealand, so another country similar to Canada. But Slovenia, they notice this downward trend. They do a really, really great job of monitoring physical activity in school. They notice that there is a downward trend in activity among children and youth. So what they did was that they re-regimented these kind of classes. Kids in Slovenia get to up to 77 minutes of moderate to vigorous, so higher intensity, good quality. So their teachers were educated on what to actually do with the kids throughout the day. It's 77 minutes per day. So all of these kids are able to meet the physical activity guidelines. And they've done something that most countries have not been able to do, which is reverse this inactivity crisis. So their kids 
are getting more activity now. So there is some merit to these classes or or regimented or implemented physical activity, as you say. Oh, and and I, I agree with you a thousand percent. My question is, could we actually ever do that here? Because if a school board said, let's, let's bring back a 70-minute-a-day rigorous phys ed program, so nobody, nobody show up without your running shoes and your gym shorts because you're doing it, and you may not be great at it, but you're going to do it, you know as well as I do that there would be parents who would be at school board meetings screaming from the rooftop saying, my kid is not doing this because they need to be working on other things. They're not good at sports, so leave them out of this. You know that would happen. For sure, and I definitely agree with that 100%, like you say, but the problem is is that we've normalized that that's okay. We've Mm. normalized that it's okay to not have phys ed. We've normalized that it's okay to have these ball bands or hockey bands or snow bands or any of these things, and and, and that's fine, but we're okay with then kids who are inactive or kids who are developing obesity or other even more serious health consequences because they're not active. So as a society, I think we have to shift these social norms a bit to to really put the importance back on being active and being active at a young age and throughout childhood and adolescence. I agree with you 5,000%. That's exactly what we need to be doing. I just don't know how. And I think, I mean, I, I have to believe that this ultimately puts the blame, if you want to assign blame in this somewhere, to the parents of kids? I mean, if, if, we, if we as parents, and I'm going to lump all of us together, uh, aren't willing to allow these things to happen without a bunch of people screaming and yelling, well, how can we expect it's going to get better? Well, I have two main solutions, and I don't think it's fair to, to put it all in the parents or all in the all schools right. or all of everyone, because it, it really is a shift among society, is that the first is to get outside. We know just across all age groups that just by being outside, you're more likely to be active and active at higher intensities, and you're less likely to watch TV or engage in sedentary behavior. And we've heard recently the, the danger of the sedentary behavior. So just getting outside. And the more people that are outside of all ages, the safer the perceptions of the outdoors are, right? So then you want to go outside because there's other people. It's not scary. It's kind of what we do. And then the second one is to reduce our screen time. And again, that's not just for parents, that's also for adults, because children model their behavior across adults, not necessarily just their parents, right? So when they see everyone on their phones and their tablets and their computers and their all of these things at all times, that's kind of a normalized behavior. That's kind of what we do. I like to say you wouldn't have cotton candy for breakfast because that's not what you do. <laughs> we would hope. <laughs> we would hope. We would hope, but it's just not a social norm. If you if you pulled out a bag of cotton candy, people would kind of question you. So we need to renormalize that sedentary behavior is not what you do. Mm. After dinner or in the evening, you just don't use your tablet, computer, cell phone, all these kind of things. And here's the other interesting part about this study, and it goes back exactly to what you were just saying a second ago, is that one of the big areas, as I look at this, where we differ from a lot of these other countries that are doing much better is transportation. Specifically, when we want to go from point A to point B, generally we take a car. A lot of these other places, they walk, they bike, they do whatever. And just that alone, that activity alone is enough to make a significant difference. For sure, for sure. And it's these kind of small trips. We're not asking you to bike 30 kilometers or walk a half marathon every day to get your groceries. But small trips to the store, you kind of get used to biking over to get your milk instead of jumping in the car to go do it or walking after work to get 
whatever it is, rather than always jumping in the car. And then the more people that get out and are traveling through bikes or walking or whatever, then the safer the sidewalks become as well. You get kind of that protection among others. And that that's, that's the interesting word there, because nowadays, if you... And you know this, if you send your kid to school to walk to school by themselves and it's a, a mile away, every, you're a bad parent because there are creeps and pedophiles and kidnappers looming around every corner. And how can you let your kid not have the protection of a parent to get to school? I mean, we know this exists. And so you get the stink eye if you let your kid walk that distance. And yet that seems to be part of the solution to this problem. Yeah, and it's always funny because I like to say that the the race of, of I'm not trying to discount the any kind of tragedy or anything that that could of possibly not. happen. Of course not. But but the rates of of anything bad happening on the walk to school are actually very 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 low. The risks of being cyber bullied or cyber predators or anything like that are actually on the rise. So it's actually more dangerous to keep your kid inside than to let them play outside. They're getting more activity, and then the long-term benefits are exponential. The long-term benefits, and we just have a minute or so left here, but the long-term benefits are very obvious because if, if we can get healthier, and I mean, certainly as adults, we need to do it, but especially, you know, our kids are coming up. This is huge enormous amounts of money out of the healthcare system that we could save if we don't have kids who are diabetic or who have other kinds of problems that go along with that. Oh, billions, billions. If even we move the needle to, to 10% of Canadians who are more active and less sedentary. So we're not saying 10% more Canadians who are meeting guidelines even. We're just saying move them along the way to getting more active. We can save billions in healthcare dollars. This is the Conference Board of Canada has done some really great reports to showing exactly how much. You can do some statistically statistical modeling to talk about the direct and indirect healthcare costs, all of that kind of stuff. And and it's really interesting to see how little you have to move the needle in the inactivity to change to get real financial savings. And it's a lot about prevention and talking about it. And again, like bringing up this at, at your PTA meetings and kind of going against the policies that reduce activity. So those ball bands, those snow bands, those cartwheel bands, all of that kind of stuff. And, and we saw, and you guys might have heard as well recently in Toronto, they actually reversed the ball hockey ban. So now kids can play ball hockey and it's stuff like that that's really going to help. I've heard of ball bands on schoolyards and I've heard of schools not letting people out when it's snowing. There's a cartwheel ban somewhere? There's a couple that came up uh, last year, in fact, because they were worried if the, there was not a proper gymnastics feature and the kids were doing cartwheels and they may hurt themselves <laughs> and things like that. And there's, there's been some that the children, the overall policy is that children aren't allowed to, to pick up snow because they may throw it and they may hit someone and, and, and so on and so, so forth. So there, there are a ridiculous amount of things that you can or cannot do on school playgrounds, but... To let kids be kids, I mean, there, there is a study in New Zealand where they actually just got rid of every single schoolyard rule, all of them, all of them out the door, and they saw increased activity, reduced bullying, reduced injuries, and all these kind of things, because kids know their limits. They know their boundaries. They don't want to get hurt. If not being able to pick up snow because they might throw it is a rule, then we should probably ban kids drinking water at school because they could drown. I mean, it's just, it's it's, it's a ridiculous situation. Listen, we, we're out of time, unfortunately. Dr. Alana LeBlanc, exercise physiologist with Participation. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on 
AM 900 CHML. Great story today. Listen, I, I have now, I keep saying, well, you know, I'm not going to bug McKenzie again because, you know, he's busy. So when Mackenzie Hughes got his PGA Tour card a couple months ago, I thought, oh, you know, great for him. And that we had him on, and that was great. And then not that long ago, in his first event, he ended up playing two rounds with Phil Mickelson. I was like, okay, how does he do better than that? Well, I got to tell you, today he figured out a way to do better than that. Playing at the RSM Classic in Georgia, Mackenzie fired a 9-under 61. 9-under par, 61. Nine birdies, no bogeys clean round and is now sitting in first place in a PGA Tour event, the first Hamiltonian ever to even contemplate such a thing. No one else has even thought about that this was realistic, that a Hamiltonian could be sitting in first place at a PGA Tour event. Uh, Mackenzie joins me now. Mackenzie, congratulations. Quite a day today. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, it was really fun and one of those days when everything seems to be going right and everything's clicking, so... I just tried to ride that momentum and and keep that pedal down. I didn't want to slow down and and try and get uh, conservative out there. So I played aggressive all the way around and just had a great time doing it. Well, I can tell you, and I probably shouldn't admit this to you because it it may sound a little insulting. It's certainly not meant this way. But when I went on the PGA leaderboard today to see how you were doing, I, I went through the entire leaderboard and I didn't see your name and I thought, well, maybe he's not playing this week. And then I realized, you know, the one spot I never checked was the very first spot on the leaderboard. And I went back and Come on. there you were. And I was like, and again, I, you know, I, now I've learned my lesson. I've learned my lesson. Um, now, you know. now I know. Hey, w- those of us who, um, who don't play like you do will never, ever in our life shoot a 61. What does it feel like to shoot a 61? Feels pretty great. <laughs> And, um, you know what, to be honest, even as a, you know, a top level pro and, and, and guys that play on the PGA tour, I mean, it doesn't happen very often. And when you get a chance to potentially shoot sub 60, you know, those days are, you know, few and far between, but they're just, you know, a lot of fun to be a part of. And when I was out there today, I was really having a lot of fun and, you know, as a professional golfer, you really enjoy boring golf. Now, I would say down the middle, on the green, make the putt was kind of the way I described my day. And some may say, oh, that sounds very boring. But as a professional golfer, you just love to hear that word boring. Oh, I played boring golf today. And so, you know, again, 61 was incredible. I've I've done it twice now, 61 in the low round. And when was the last time? You know, again, the last time uh, was last May. I shot 61, um, and it was actually a par 72, so it was minus 11. But, you know, I probably put this round ahead of that one, even though, I mean, they were both great, but I probably put this one just slightly ahead of that one. But, again, they, they're, they're few and far between, so you really have to enjoy them when they come. Um, but, you know, those rounds, they, they just, the whole thing's a bit bigger, you're obviously you're swinging it well you're in control of your game and then you get to a certain point and you kind of just have that sense that it's going to be your day so you know they're just really fun i i had uh had a blast out there what happens when you get back to the clubhouse afterwards do the other guys because they're all pros they're all pga tour players do they say anything when you go into the clubhouse are they ultra competitive and they just try and ignore you or do you get compliments from them 
No, I, I got a bunch of compliments from, uh, from the guys out there, and a lot of guys that I know pretty well were, you know, giving me high fives and telling me good job. And so it's it's not really the – it is a very ultra-competitive environment, but guys still appreciate a great round like that. They, they know what goes into having to do something like that. Yeah, yeah, they all they all understand, they all get it. You know, 61 is a 61, and no matter where you're playing or what the conditions are, 61 is a great round. And so there was definitely some uh, appreciation from the other players, which, which is nice. One of the things that blew me away today, and anyone who golfs is going to understand this, and if they don't golf, I'll give a quick explanation, but you had a 100% driving accuracy today, which means you had 14 tee shots with on 14 fairways. You hit the fairway every single time, and you weren't, like, dinking it out there. You averaged 299 yards a drive. I, when was the last time you had a 100% driving accuracy rating? You know, off the top of my head, I can't think of it, but it, it has happened, you know, a decent amount of times. Not Not in the last little while, for sure, but... You know that that certainly makes your life a lot easier. Uh, it kind of goes without saying that being in the fairway is a lot better than being in the sand or the bushes or the water. And so, you know, my job was made a lot easier. And you can kind of attack some of the pins better when you're in the fairways. And again, just the stress and peace of mind being in the middle of the fairway all day was was pretty nice. Was there at any point when you're playing around like this, at any point do you catch yourself even thinking, like, are you serious? Like, is this really happening? You, there must be points when you're when it just seems surreal almost. Yeah, there was. Uh, there are definitely moments when you, when you catch yourself and you catch yourself thinking about things that aren't productive or, or useful to what you're currently doing, which is the shot at hand. And so if you find yourself getting ahead of yourself, you just have to recognize that, you know, your thoughts are in the wrong place and, and just try and bring yourself back to something productive, like just anything but outcome and results and, you know, getting ahead of yourself. I mean, those, those are the kind of things that, you know, hurt your round or, or hurt your performance. So I caught myself a couple of times today thinking, oh, you know, I might shoot sub 60 today or, oh, I'm, uh, I'm close to the lead on the PGA Tour. And, and, you know, you catch yourself quickly and you say, all right, okay, that was you know a brief lapse in concentration. Let's get back to get back to focusing here on what we have to do, and and just basically stay focused and, and not let your uh, your attention kind of wander to things that you can't control. That said, how many times today would you say that you actually glanced at a leaderboard as you were walking by? Um, I probably looked at three or four leaderboards. I mean. Out here on the PGA Tour, they're pretty hard to miss. They're rather large and in your face. So you walk by a green, and the leaderboard's kind of sitting right there in front of you. So I I probably looked at a few today. Um, you know, I never really got distracted by the thought that, you know, I was leading or anything like that. I just, I saw it, you know, recognized that I was up there and then kept kept doing my thing. I didn't really get thrown off by any leaderboards or seeing where I was at. Just, I knew, I, I knew, you know, you, as a player, you just know you're in a good spot. I mean, I didn't need to see it, to see a leaderboard to mm. know I was in a good spot on leaderboard. So I just kind of saw it, noticed it, and then carried on doing my thing. But they're, they're definitely, uh, you know, I definitely saw a few. 
for people who don't understand it, and again, diehard golfers are going to get this for sure. And I understand that. And so to them, I apologize if this is going, the next minute or two is going to be a little simplistic, but there's three rounds left. You want to win this tournament. I understand that everyone gets that you want to win this tournament, but there's more to what you're doing right now than just winning this tournament. Even if it doesn't happen, even if you don't win this there is still value in finishing really well this this week. Explain the the money and the point system and how that impacts you going forward for the rest of the year and for your career. Yeah, well, obviously, like you said, I mean, even if you don't win, if you finish second, you know, it, it would you know mean a great deal to me. But there's um, a system on the PGA Tour called the FedEx Cup, and it's all points driven and keep your card on the PGA Tour, you need to be the top 125 in points. And they've gone away from the money system. I mean, we still earn money, but you don't keep your card based on money anymore. So it's all based on points. And every point you earn um, after making the cut is extremely valuable. So, you know, like in, uh, in Napa, I made 59 points. And so I had a, I had a good week there, made a good amount of points, and that was, you know, a, a nice start to my season. Um, if you win a tournament, that's 500 points. So you can see how, you know, obviously that would be extremely valuable to me and to anybody, really. Um, so, but going forward, after this tournament, they do these things called reshuffles, and they reshuffle basically the members on the tour based on the number of points they have. But... I'm only being reshuffled against the guys in my web.com category. So there's 50 guys that got their PGA Tour cards through the web.com. After this event, they're going to rank those guys from 1 to 50 again based on the number of points they've made in the FedEx Cup. So, again, the more points, the better. Uh, I want to be as high in that 50 category as I can, and that determines what events I might get into coming up in the springtime uh, in 2017. So... Again, it's a bit it's a bit complicated. There's a lot a lot more to it than what I've really described, but that's the gist of it. But every uh, good fin every good finish is a is a huge advantage for building up that point bank. Yep, yep, and you know, uh, an eighth place finish is much more valuable than a twentieth place finish. And I mean, every you know, a couple of shots here or there, you know, they're all crucial and they're all you know big points. And it's a long year, but you know, the three points I made in Vegas you know, seem insignificant and they seem small, but they might be the difference between, you know, top 100 and and being 101 or 70th and 71st or, you know, and it's just little things, splitting hairs. So, again, you know, you fight, fight as hard as you can, you play hard every shot and uh, try and get as many points as you can. Does a win on an, any tour event, does a win have any special meaning beyond the money and beyond the trophy? Does it guarantee entry into other events or is it just a win? So a win comes with a two-year exemption. So For everything? I would, for the PGA Tour, yeah. So I, if I won, hypothetically, I would have this year, um, obviously the rest of this year to play, and then two additional years guaranteed um, membership to play basically whenever I want. That's huge. So... It's huge, yeah. No, I mean, be, beyond the money, because everyone looks at the check you would get and everyone oh, yeah, looks at the trophy and the honor, yeah. but it's huge career-wise. No, yeah, and um, so, you know, the exemption, you know, it would get you into the Masters. I mean, there's 
there's a lot of things that go with it, but you can't really concern yourself with what that that is. I mean, I I know these things, and you know they're not uh, any secret. So you just you recognize that they're they're there, but at the end of the day, there's there's three rounds of golf left to go. Um, you know, I, I believe in myself that I, I know I can I can hang in there and, and, and compete with these guys. But again, three rounds to go, lots can happen. So I'm just gonna try and take it one shot at a time and see where I'm at come Sunday afternoon. Well, you tee off tomorrow morning at 11.20, I believe, and I can't imagine there's been another time or too many other times when you've been more eager to actually get back onto the, the course. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm excited to keep going and, and to keep playing the way I've been playing. So um, I actually do have to play a different golf course tomorrow. So I don't get to play the exact same course I played today. There's two courses here this week. So I am playing a different course, but I'm still excited nonetheless and looking forward to another great day. Well, I can tell you, uh, you got married a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. It, it obviously hasn't hurt. No, no, it's uh, it's not it's not hurting. <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm actually playing. I'm playing with the ring on. Believe it or not. Really? So, yep. Yep. All so, right. Well, no, it's working. No yep, it's working. Mackenzie Hughes, uh, first place. Uh, in the PGA event that's going on this weekend. First place in the RSM Classic. I hope I can say that after the second round, the third round, and then after the fourth round as well, Mackenzie. What's the appropriate thing? Do you say good luck to a golfer in the middle of an event, or do you, is there some other thing that you're supposed to say so you don't jinx the guy? Um, whatever you say will be, will be just fine. Okay, you know, well, I, uh, good I'm, luck I'm the rest of the way. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mackenzie. That is uh, Mackenzie Hughes, who, um, again, first place right now in the RSM Classic. Uh, There's a story in the paper tomorrow, a little story. There's also one online. In either of those places, you can find the web address if you wanted to be following along tomorrow with the leaderboard and see how he does. But when you think, and I've said this before, and I, I don't mean to keep coming back to the same well over and over again, but when you think of how many people on the planet are golfers. How many people play golf? And you whittle that down from the people who play golf to the people who are pretty good at golf, who get into tournaments, to the people who become really good at golf, who get into lower rung, the McKenzie Tour, that's actually what it's called, or the web.com tour, you start working your way up through the minor leagues, to the people who become so good that they get their tour card who are the elite of the elite who are playing on the PGA tour. And then at the end of a round in a tournament, in a PGA tournament, you are at the top of the leaderboard. You, you just, some of you are going to say, well, why, why have you had him on a few times? Think about how unlikely it is. Think about the odds of all that stuff happening. And you being from Hamilton from Dundas actually, but being on the top of the leaderboard at a PGA tour event. A worldwide PGA Tour event. This is the top event in the world that's going on this week. And he's, I mean, to me, that is just a really cool thing. That is a really unbelievable thing. And it would be, I was going to say it would be like being the best player in the NHL. Be like being Wayne Gretzky to a degree, except the difference is, and I'm not taking anything. Wayne Gretzky was, I mean, I loved Wayne Gretzky. But not everyone around the world played golf. There is golf being played everywhere, 
and you are now the top guy in the top event right now. Now, he's still got three rounds to go. I understand that. But nonetheless, someday down the road, depending on how his career goes, this may be one of those moments that he actually prints out and puts up on the wall that for a day, he was the best golfer on the planet. And a 61 is pretty good too. Anyone who's ever golfed before understands. Luke and I could go out right now and both of us would probably shoot a 61 on the front six or seven holes. I mean, with 12 lost balls. Now, we're not good golfers. But even if you're a good golfer, think about it. For those of you who are good golfers, a 61 on a PGA-style course with the pressure of your career riding on it, good for him. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.